An error occurred when originally recording this podcast. Subsequently, the first portion of this message is missing. We apologize for this inconvenience. The sermon brought by Pastor Tommy Phillips is based in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13. through 13. It's always been understood um, that societies in that day that did not place boundaries on sexuality were developmentally crippled. Um, you were living at a time when it was possible for your entire um, nation to be wiped out in the span of a year, for everyone to die and for your nation to vanish from the earth. Um, so generally the laws that were made were for the longevity of your tribe, for, of your community, and, um, and any sexual laws that were made in the secular world, in the pagan world, um, any sexual laws that were made typically were simply there to prolong um, the nation, the people. Um, they were set in place to keep the people from really destroying themselves. It was to make them stronger. Um, things like incest, because that always caused mutations. That was always, um, that was always like a law that was not acceptable, because then uh, you're, you're going to fill your population um, with people who aren't going to be productive and, and will be detrimental to society. So this is how the world viewed um, sexuality in the day. Um, the Jews and the Christians were different. They, um, they had what was called sort of the Jewish sexual revolution. It was a long time ago, probably 3,800 years ago. Um, and it consisted of following God's commands to, um, the best way I can put this is to force um, the sexual genie into the marital bottle. God gave the Jews a different way to live. He told them, um, we're going to do things a little different than the rest of the world is doing things. Um, sex is going to be directed. It's going to have um, a purpose. It's going to have a meaning. It's going to have a story. Um, it's going to tell of God and his people. Um, and when you use sex, this is how you will use it. You will not use it like everyone else. Um, you are set apart. You are separate. And it was sort of, we don't expect everyone to live like this. We expect you to live like this because you are God's people. You have made the covenant, and there you are. You alone will be different. Don't go out there and, 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 and hold the sword to everyone's neck and force them to live your way. Your way is unique and special and different. It's God's law for you. Um, it was a very particular thing. And it basically ensured a few things. It ensured that sex no longer dominated their communities. Um, if sex had a certain time and place that it could be exercised, uh, then it didn't dominate the community anymore. People weren't going around like animals looking for something to have sex with. Um, uh, the second thing that did it is it heightened male-female love, love and sexuality, um, and thereby almost alone creating this possibility of love and eroticism within marriage, and that never existed before. Um, in, in the world, in marriage, marriage was not about, um, eroticism is not something that was there. Um, they, you had sex for procreation, and it was, it was, a, a, it was an arrangement um, to promote your family lineage. Uh, most eroticism was found other places, in the temples, um, with prostitutes, um, and, and, and this meant, no, it's going to happen within marriage. It's going it's to be, be different. It's going to make the marriage something different than it was. Um, and the last thing that it did is it sort of began a very long task of elevating the status of women. They no longer were just um, sex tools or prostitutes or temple priests to, to have sex with or um, a business arrangement to prolong your family. Um, they had an identity and a purpose and they were elevated to the status of men. Um, and so it was, it was something unique that God wanted to do in the world. Um, and I think very few people focus on the idea that, um, no, God wants his people to be different. His people. Um, and, and Paul talks about this. If you look down at the bottom of the chapter there, 
Um, he specifically says, I'm not telling you to go out and, and start yelling at everyone in the world to live the way you are commanded to live. You are followers of Jesus. You are commanded to live differently. All right? Um, and so, and we're going to get to all that. We're going to get there in a little bit. So it's probably pretty impossible for us who live thousands of years after Judaism began this process um, to perceive the extent to which undisciplined sex can dominate a man's life, especially a man's life. Um, men are typically known as sexually wild beings. Um, most sex crimes that are committed are committed by men. The vast, overwhelming majority of them are committed by men. Men are, have generally been known as very sexually wild creatures, um, especially in that day. It, it was... It was Unbelievable the, the ways that you read that men would behave sexually in that day. Um, and, and God sort of pulled everybody together and says, all right, we're going to put boundaries on this. It's going to be directed. It's going to have purpose and meaning. And this is how it's going to be. And, and yes, men, you're going to have your, your desires fulfilled. Women, you're going to have your desires fulfilled. And, and this is going to be different. Um, it's, it's really a very interesting, different way. Um, so uh, one, of the, one of the consequences... Of um, one of the consequences of having no view of chastity at all was that everything became sexually infused, especially religion. Um, the gods of virtually all civilization engaged in sexual uh, relations. I have, uh, sorry, I always have this blank slide here. I don't know why. All right. Um, here's a little bit of what I gathered. Uh, this, this list could be books, all right? Um, ancient gods and sexuality. Um, these are different accounts of gods, ancient gods that people believed in, that were very sexual gods. Every one of them, every ancient god was a very sexual being, would have sex with other gods, would have sex with people. Um, in the ancient Near East, the Babylonian god Ishtar, um, and by the way, that's where actually, um, I'm not going to go into it, it has to do with Easter, some other time, um, uh, seduced a man, Gilgamesh, the Babylonian hero. Um, so Ishtar was, was a very prominent god. Um, it, and he had, a, he had a, every year a pagan celebration to his name where people would have just pr promiscuous sex all over the city. Um, and Christians eventually, um, that's actually the date that we choose to celebrate Easter on. Um, we didn't change the name very much. Um, and, but we, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And it was sort of this in-your-face kind of thing. Um, so um, uh, and, and it, go, it was spread all through ancient Egypt. Um, Hinduism even. Um, Krishna was sexually active. He had many, many wives, pursued um, Radha, the god Samba. Um, even even in, in modern day religions uh, like, like Islam, um, uh, sex is one of the rewards you get um, uh, for dying a martyr. Um, Greek beliefs, Zeus, mar uh, Zeus married Hera, chased women, abducted beautiful young males. All, it was just their stories about their gods and their people and their actions was completely rampant with sexuality. All right? Um, in Rome, God sexually pursued both men and women and other gods. Fascinatingly, the first thing that we see in the scriptures tells an awful lot about how this story is going to go. Um, in the book of Genesis, it sets it apart from every other creation narrative that existed on the planet when this was written. Um, and it had everything to do with the desexualization of God. And it went like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of his own will, um, not through any sexual behavior, not because he had any desire that was lacking. I mean, that's what sex is. It's a desire, and you're out to fulfill it. And just like hunger, just like thirst, just like loneliness, just like all these things, it's a desire. 
Um, man and, and creation, the story, the, the, way, the way the ancient Jews told the story was man and all of creation was created not to fulfill any desires. It was created because God wanted to. He decided to. He decided to do something beautiful in the same way that a painter decides to paint a beautiful picture. It's not that complicated. It's very simple. But this simple fact changed the way the ancient world viewed sexuality. All right? Completely changed it. Um, um, this was an utterly radical break from all other religions, and it changed human history. It really did. Um, given the sexual activity of the gods, it's not really surprising that the religions um, themselves were replete with all forms of sexual activity. Um, our very first week studying the book of Corinthians, I showed you this picture. Um, this was the Acropolis up there. That mountain, this was Corinth. Um, there was 4,000 temple prostitutes living up on top of that mountain. Every night, they would come down out of the, out of, uh, uh, from the temple, down the mountain, into the city, and the sexual escapades would begin. Um, and every single day. So when people in other cities um, were, were behaving immorally, they would look at them and say, hey, you're acting like a Corinthian. And, and these people were actually pretty proud of that, that people were using them in that way. Um, so this is the city, this is the culture that Paul is, is speaking to. All right? And in this culture, he's bringing in a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living, and something called the gospel. All right? Judaism placed controls on sexual activity, and later did the Christians put the exact same controls on it. It was no longer to be a thing that defines us and is the drive for our every action. Um, daily, every single day today in modern day, our, our world is teaching us that who you are is defined by your sexuality. The scriptures tell a different story. Your sexuality in no way defines who you are. If you, be, if you come to Christ, who are you? You are a child of God, hidden in Christ, perfect, made holy, set aside in his service. It has nothing to do with sex. Nothing. Um, our identity is not sexual. Uh, when you come to Christ, things are no longer like that. They don't define you. Um, and, and in this setting, it could no longer dominate religion and social life. It was to be sanctified. In Hebrew, uh, the word is separated. Um, it means separated uh, from the world and placed in the home in the bed of the husband and wife. And Judaism restricting, Judaism, Judaism's restricting of sexual behavior was one of the essential elements that enabled their society to progress and eventually to become very dominant in the Western world. Um, because it was, it, was, it was a way of living that would not be distracted and, by sex and be destructed by sex as well. Um, wars have been fought over sex. Um, there is much more to say about all of this. Over the next two weeks, there's actually several more times where he talks about this in those chapters, and we're going to get there. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stop there with this talk today and move on to the subject of, of what Paul is talking about here. Because um, there's a lot more to say about all this, we're going to talk about it over the next two chapters. Um, but it's within all of this context that I wanted you to have that Paul confronts a man in the Corinthian church. Um, apparently, he is sleeping with his father's wife. Obviously, um, not his first wife. Obviously, his second wife It would be the, the man's stepmother. Um, but make no mistake, this did count as incest in that day. And, and even to the pagans, it was off limits. It was something you didn't do. So verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Um, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The word he uses here, here in the Greek is the word porneia. It refers to sex outside of marriage. Um, there's, it, ha, it can have different meanings here and there, but when you boil it down to it, and, and you ask an ancient Greek to define this word, 
um, all it really meant was sex outside of marriage. Um, that's what it meant. Um, so, and, and so he uses this word pornography. It's actually where we get our word pornography. Um, so, uh, where was I? I didn't, okay, there we go. Um, so the word Paul uses is, is porneia. It means sex outside of marriage. It's the ancient Jewish way that God had given them to set them apart from the rest of the world. It was very important that they live in this way. Um, the interesting thing is, um, Paul even says that this wasn't just a violation of Judeo-Christian moral code. It was actually frowned upon by everybody in all pagan societies, um, and a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. Um, one of the things that you must notice here um, that's very important to notice is that Paul only confronts the man in the church. Obviously, his father's wife was not um, a, a Christian, was not a member of the church. She may have been a Christian. She wasn't a member of the church. Um, obviously, they had some way of keeping track of, their, of, of who was part of the church and who wasn't. Um, they're known uh, several places in the scriptures. It talks about Paul making lists of people who were uh, sort of members of the church, if you will. Um, the only person that he confronts is the man. He doesn't confront the woman. Why? Um, he doesn't seek to pronounce judgment and condemnation upon someone who has not bound themselves to the gospel. We have to understand this, and we have to talk about this in the broader Christian community. Um, we don't pronounce judgment and condemnation upon someone who has not bound themselves to the gospel. She was obviously not a believer in the gospel. She was obviously not to be confronted in her sin. She was to be loved, served, shown grace and peace and hopes uh, in the hopes that she would one day believe hear the message of the gospel, and believe it. Um, this is a huge PR problem in Christianity. I probably don't even need to tell you that. It's a big problem. Um, us going out of the church and trying to get everyone out there to live as if they're members of our church. Like, why would they do that? What purpose would that serve? It doesn't. Um, the reason that Christians strive to live in the moral code that God has given us um, is because of sanctification. Um, it is a very difficult thing to do. It is a very difficult way to live. But um, God promises us that when we come to Christ, um, His Holy Spirit will start working in us um, to sanctify us, to make us into what we have been declared to be. Um, we have been declared righteous and holy, and, and sanctification is the process by which every day we are moving closer and closer and closer into what God wants us to be. And we can look back and see the progression. And James says it's actually evidence of your salvation, your sanctification taking place. Um, but the problem is we're, we're followers of Jesus. We're expected to live this way, um, to live within the confines of, of what God has laid out for us so that will be different from them. And they have no reason to live like this. And we're sort of forcing sanctification upon a people who have no ability to be sanctified. They cannot live like Christians. We should not expect them to. We look at ourselves. We expect ourselves. We look at our body, our, our, our body of believers, and, and we say, hey, what you are doing is, is against what the creed that you are declaring. And, and we talk to Christians this way. People on the outside, um, we, we proclaim the gospel to in hopes that they will understand the gospel, and only then can sanctification start taking place. All right? Um, it's a symbol that God's ways are different from our own. Um, we don't teach morality to the world. We don't teach people to just go around living great. We teach them the gospel. Morality makes people worse. The gospel makes people holy. So if you want to make people holy, you teach the gospel. You don't teach morality. Um, 
Uh, look, at, look at the second half of uh, verse 2. Uh, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is where it gets interesting because, um, I, honestly, I see a lot of news stories that hit the news of people being kicked out of churches. I, I hear constantly um, people talking about, I can't believe a church would ever ask someone to leave or ever kick someone out of a church. Um, and all this tells me is that we're not fully understanding the culture um, and that somehow we think our culture is better than their culture. So we're going to talk culture, all right? Um, it's another, this passage in, in, in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Um, here's another thing that, that we constantly get wrong. People, we, we confront people outside the church, but we never confront people inside the church. And what is that? Um, Paul here, he scolds them for being proud. He tells them that, that they ought to be mourning. And the word he uses actually for mourning is this word, uh, pentane, which uh, is the word used for mourning the dead. So they're, they're standing there. They're all proud of themselves. Look how alive we are. We're, and, and Jesus looks at him. He sa- Paul looks at him. He says, you know, um, you, you actually have a dead guy in your midst. You're all celebrating your life, your great life that you have. But there's someone literally dead right there in your midst. You should be mourning his death. And you're carrying on like... Like, you don't care. Like, it doesn't matter that someone just died in your midst. Um, and then that's the word he uses. He says, you have a dead guy in your midst. Why are you standing around celebrating? Um, you're letting things go on in your midst that, you, that, you need, that need to be dealt with, that need to be carried out. Um, and this is church discipline. This is what Paul is telling them to exercise. There are several passages in the scriptures where um, it tells you how to carry out church discipline. Jesus himself taught about it in Matthew 18. Um, it's very clear if you ever want to one day attend our, our membership class, we talk about what it is and how it's done. It's a very rare thing, but it's a very necessary thing. Um, many Christians have a very, very hard time with the idea that anyone would ever be removed from a church. Um, and he's telling them, he actually is telling them to expel somebody from the church. And I know a lot of you here are probably like, well, that's, that's wrong. Paul's wrong. Um, we should not be ever expelling anyone from the church. Um, the idea of expelling someone from a church, it goes completely against our modern culture. And this is why you feel it's wrong. Our modern culture has taught two um, uh, things which we, are very, that which we view as very important. Two things, expressive individualism and modern individualism. Expressive, expressive individualism, these things don't necessarily, uh, they, don't, they don't sort of work together. You can hold them separately, but typically Americans actually hold them together. Um, expressive individualism says this I have decided within myself what is right and wrong and I determine it so um, in ancient days there would be there would be um, a, a basic moral code and that would be based on something some god some something um, and you would conform your outside with what you believed um, today no you would conform your inside with what you saw on the outside um, today we come up with our, own, with our own belief systems inside of us. We decide, this is what I believe, this is what I don't believe. It has no, no bearing on what's going on around us. We can hold ideas all by ourselves. Um, this is a pretty new invention in human history. Um, and we determine what is right and wrong, and then we mold our outsides to look like that. Something that goes along with that a lot of times is called moral individualism. I am only responsible for myself, and I'm not responsible for anyone else's actions or morality. You know what this is? Uh, you ever seen that show, What Would You Do? When people stand around and watch some atrocity happen right in front of them, and they have hidden cameras and watching, what would you do? Um, and typically, people either, either like get involved and yell and scream, or they just sit there and be like, can you believe that's happening? Someone should do something. Um, and this is what this is. I'm responsible for what happens to me. They're responsible for what happens to them. And we say things like, they got what they deserved. You know, walking a tire up above a building, and they splatted. Boom, they're responsible for it. Um, every other culture would, would, would not 
in, in history, we're, we're like, it's a, it's a pretty new invention. Ancient cultures would not ever think like this, that I'm responsible for myself and, and, I'm, respo- and I'm not responsible for anyone else's actions or morality. Um, people used to get very involved in each other's lives and, and stop them from making bad decisions and restrain them from doing bad things that had bad repercussions. Um, and they felt some sense of responsibility to the people around them. They did. Um, if they were acting wrongly, they would expect to be confronted. Um, so when you put these two things together, you actually end up with no church discipline. Um, because you end up with a church full of people who interpret, you either end up with a church full of people who interpret the scriptures however they individually want, and there's no need to ever take anyone else to task for their actions, or you end up with a church full of people who only look out for their own spirituality and no sense of communal identity. Um, This is completely different now from the context of this day. Um, Church discipline is right because we have corporate responsibility to each other. Uh, Most Americans hold the idea that you are responsible for yourself and no one else, Uh, but the truth is that people are a product of their community. People are a product of their community. Um, that is why there are detailed instructions on how to run a church. That is why there are detailed instructions about um, how we are to live in a community. That's why God called an entire nation of people and gave them the law instead of just giving it to one dude. Because communities matter, and, and community fosters behavior, and so that community should be behaving in a way that fosters the kind of behavior that is desired by God. Um... And, and you might be sitting here going, yes, yes, I agree with that, I agree with that. I would challenge whether or not you agree with that, because I would, I would like to bring your attention to Joshua chapter 7. Um, I'm not going to read it, I'm just, you've heard it once I start going, you're going to remember what it is. You ever heard of a man named Achan? Pretty famous guy, he, uh, he was part of a, um, uh, the Israelite army. They were commanded to go into this city, um, conquer the city, take all the riches, give them to the temple. Why give them to the temple? People hear that and they're like, oh, that's so wrong. The temple, they just want to be rich. No, the temple was the place where social justice would happen. If somebody was hungry, they didn't have any food, they would go to the temple. They had storerooms full of food to give you. If, you, if, they, if they needed money, they could go to the temple and be given charity like that. Um, uh, the temple was the place where all of the thing, the actions in the city that were centered towards people who were needy would happen. Um, so they were commanded to go into the city, take all the riches that you find, a very rich city, and give them all to the temple. So they all did. And then the next day they fought another battle and lost terribly. And he's like, why? What, why did we lose? Um, he says, because someone in your city took something from that city that was not theirs. They did not give it to the temple. And so they finally narrow it down to a guy named Achan. And what happens? They bring out him, his family, his relatives, everything that he owns, destroyed them all. And you read that, and you say, that is not right. That is unfair. That Why would their cousins and his sister, why would everybody be destroyed because of his actions? The interesting thing is, nobody had a problem with it in the scriptures. Nobody in ancient times would have a problem with them doing that. And the question is, why? Because everyone in ancient times knew that someone doesn't get to that point where they were steal um, an, a, a, a very expensive... A purple robe from Babylon that would have fed thousands of people probably with the money that if they had sold it and given it to the church. Um, and they stole it and kept it for themselves, things that should have been used for everybody to help poor people. 
You don't get to that point, and people would have recognized this, you don't get to that point with at least some complicity from the people that you were with. It had been encouraged, fostered in some way. It had been uh, uh, at, least in the, at the least not condemned. It had, been, it had just, just been casually just maybe okayed. Maybe it was a regular ritual. Maybe it was a regular thing that did in that family. And they knew if a family like this continued to live in our city, they're going to spawn more and more Achans, and this is going to be very bad for our city. What happened in the book of Judges over and over and over again? Every single time that they did not kick the people out of the city when they took over a new city, uh, whenever they let them live there, what happened? They always ended up worshiping their gods. Every single time, because community fosters likeness like community. Community that is just like it. So if this little community was starting to spawn, they had a fear that it would destroy all of Israel. They had to do it. They didn't have jails. Like what? They're a nomadic people. They're not traveling anywhere. Would you have a traveling jail? No, the only sentence that they had was death, so they killed them all. In ancient times, everyone would read that and be like, yep, that's what we would have done. You today, we're all very moral. We're all very intellectual people, and we call foul when we read things like this. And that day, it was, it was, it was perfectly acceptable and normal. So as far as Paul is concerned, we are responsible for our community. And when we know that somebody in the church is throwing out God's directed sexuality for us through adultery in any form of pornea, um, as Paul would say, uh, and you say, it's not my place to speak into their lives, um, then you have let culture into the church. And this is what Paul wants us to know. It's very difficult, believe me. I've done it several times. Several times I've had to look into the eyes of people who have been in this church for a long time and confront them for their behavior. Several times it was sexual behavior. And usually they leave every time. Usually every time. That contradicts. Usually they leave. They, they, people get very offended that you would think you have any responsibility or right to speak into their lives. Well, look, we are bound as brothers by a creed. You have committed yourself to the exact same thing as me. I would expect you to confront me. I would expect it. I'd be upset when it happened, but I would expect it. And you can expect it in a community, in a church community. It's something that should happen. Um, so, when we stop reading things through our moral individualist lens, we will actually start to foster a pretty healthy community. And then he says this, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Now that sounds incredibly harsh, but it's actually very, very simple. Um, the Jews, ancient Jews actually believed that there was two domains. There was the domain of Satan and the domain of God. The domain of Satan was the people who were not, uh, the Christians would say, part of the church. And you, uh, the, the church is the domain of God. Outside the church is the domain of Satan. So we kick him out. He says, kick him out of the church. Um, and he says, for the destruction of his flesh. Now, when Paul talks about this, he's not saying so that he will die. Um, right after he says, for the destruction of the flesh, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a common theme he's been going back to over and over and over and over and over again. So when he says, for the destruction of the flesh, what did Paul talk about constantly with the flesh all through the scriptures? He says, um, die to your flesh. Die to your flesh. Die to your flesh. We're not led by our flesh. We're not controlled by our flesh. We're controlled by the spirit. So we die to our flesh and we are controlled by our spirit. We follow God. He wants him to stop living like that. And the only final way that he can get this message across to him is just say, all right, he has to go in hopes that he will come back, that he will realize 
what he has done and come back. Um, this is a very vivid phrase. It's filled with theological language. Um, and Paul's basically saying, um, if, if you're going to claim the creed of Christianity, live like a Christian. If you're not, then don't live in, in the Christian community. Don't act like you are one. You can't be some cosmic Switzerland. You can't. You, you cannot be neutral. You are one or the other. All right? You get in or you get out. Like he's saying, you are in, well, you're not. You're in the domain of God or the domain of Satan. Nobody is half in. Um, all right, so after this, he moves on. Um, in verse, verse 6, he says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is possibly one of the most... I, I started researching this, thing, bleh, researching this this week, and I saw it all through scriptures, and I have never noticed this before. So this, is, this was brilliant. I loved it. Um, uh, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's in verse 6. Um, this is an incredibly Jewish thing to say. In Jewish literature, leaven always stood for an evil influence. It was, it, was, it was an evil influence, and, 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 and here's why. It, it was dough, which had basically been kept over from previous... Um, this is for all the dudes that never baked anything. Um, it, it's dough, which had been kept over from a previous baking that had been able to sit for a while, and bacteria had started eating it, and it had started to um, decompose, and it, and it would get fluffy, for lack of a better word. Um, and so you would take this little piece of fluffy dough, mix it in with a, a huge piece of flat dough, and it would cause... It would work its way through. As you netted it, it would work its way through the entire batch of dough. And the whole thing would start to rise. And this is what Paul's saying. Um, he's saying, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, uh, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with uh, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, so he goes on about this for a little while. Um, he purposely pulls out this Passover image. This leavened bread thing is a Passover image. The people were in a hurry to get out of um, of Egypt the day after the, the, um, the final sort of plague, the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt when they were enslaved in Egypt. And he told them, prepare yourselves, we're leaving in the morning. They didn't have time to leaven um, their bread, so they ate flatbread. And so that's why when you go to a Passover today, you eat flatbread, unleavened bread. Um, it has not been given the chance to rise. Um, and the fact that that happened is incredibly theological, and the scriptures come back to that over and over and over. Um, from the very beginning, the Christians believed that it was no coincidence that Jesus died and rose again on Passover. If you were here on Easter, this is what we talked about. Jesus died at the beginning, uh, uh, right after the Passover festival, rose again at the, at the day of first fruits. The Christians, looking back on this, did not think that was a coincidence. They assumed that every Passover that had ever been celebrated was actually about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and, so, and they, so they decided that there was no coincidence, this is how God wanted it to be, and the timing explained the meaning of the Passover. The timing of what happened to Jesus explained the Passover, all right? So the entire Christian life turns out to be one long Passover celebration. Every breath we take is a breath of gratitude. Every action is a part of an endless ceremony of Passover celebration. Um, there must be no leaven, nothing dead or decomposing in our actions. Um, the... Sorry, I'm trying to get here. Give me a second. The word, um, ah, hold on. Oh, I had this thought in my brain. I was like, oh, I'm going to go this way, and then I totally lost it. Sorry, I guess I'm not supposed to say it. Um, all right. He says there must be no leaven. Um, and, and remember, leaven was actually decomposing um, pieces of the bread. All right, so think about this. It was sort of death, and you were, you were mixing it in and causing the rest of it to start dying. And so, and so Paul looks at us, 
And he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, he's talking about the Passover, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. He's saying those are things which, if they're part of leavened bread, they cause death, decomposition, decay of the community. And he says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Um, so uh, basically, he's talking about things in your life that cause death and decay, sin. The original source of, according to the ancient Jewish story, sin is the original source of all death that spreads through all people. So the leaven that Paul's talking about is this old life, the kind of behavior that pagans engage in before they understand the gospel. Um, and God's new kingdom uh, is, is this new way of living. As I thought about this this week, I started thinking about um, what I said a few minutes ago. When they moved into a new city and they had to kick everybody out of the city and they had to live there by themselves, this is a symbol of the leavened bread. Saying, no, we get rid of the old leavened bread. If we leave the leaven in here, um, it's, it's, it's dying and decaying. It's going to cause death and decay in our, in our communities. And so we kick it out. And every time they didn't kick it out, it started to happen again. And I started thinking about the church community. And, and, and when Paul says this, you know what he's saying? He's saying, um, we don't allow leaven to stay in the church because it will cause death and decay in the church. Did you know there's actually a part of the Passover festival where the people would get candles and they would run around the house searching for leaven and when they found it, they would take it and they would throw it out. Think about that. This is what Paul's telling you to do. He's saying it starts in your life. You take your little candle and you inspect your life. This is what we do during communion, um, during repentance time. We, we, we take our little candles and we go through the areas of our life where we're looking for, we're looking for leaven. We're looking for decomposition. We're looking for death and decay. And we're finding it in our lives. And we are repenting of it. We're throwing it out. We're doing exactly what um, the, the Jews did at the Passover. We're doing exactly what God told the people of Israel to do when they entered into a city. We're doing exactly what Paul tells us to do in a church. It's not just a big cosmic thing. It's not just a cultural city thing. It's not just a church thing. It's a personal thing, too. We are to do this every single time we come to the Lord in prayer or whatever. We search our lives for the death and decay, the leaven of the world, and we throw it out so it doesn't spread, so it doesn't fester, and doesn't cause the, as Paul says, the entire lump to become leavened. Sin is destructive. It is cancer. It works into our lives, and it destroys us. And when it works its way into a Christian community that is striving to live in a different way that was commanded 3,800 years ago, you want to risk destruction of that? We find the leaven... And we deal with it. We ask them to throw it out themselves, to repent of it. If not, we bring more people and we beg them, please, throw it out of your life. And if they don't, then we say, we want you to stay. We want you, but we can't have leaven in our church. We can't have death and decay and destruction in our church. It will become normal. It will, and Jesus will take the candlestick and shut it down. And we love our community. Church discipline is a very beautiful thing. It's not this ugly, terrible, horrific thing. It has purpose, it has meaning, it has tradition. All right? It's good, it's not bad. No matter how many angry bloggers have told you that it is. I've gotten letters. All right. He is clear. We repent, we confess, we confront, and we plead. And when all other attempts have failed, when that person has let themselves actually become the leaven, 
They themselves are given over to the world. They're put outside. And then he says, therefore, verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Life is a Passover celebration. It is. Verse 9 through 12, he's actually perfectly clear how this is supposed to work. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. <laughs> I like that. Um, you, need to, you need to don't associate with the people who are brothers in Christ. He's telling them um, the ones who have refused to change. He says, don't treat them like your brothers anymore. Um, and he's saying, but that doesn't mean go out in the city and stop treating everybody else in the world that's behaving this way wrong because they're actually, they're, they don't have that morality on them. They haven't taken it upon themselves. And then actually in order to get away from them, you'd have to leave the planet. Um, that's what he said. Um, so for now, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, a fellow Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Um, not to even eat with such a one. What he's saying is... Uh, and, and, and this doesn't mean that, like, someone has a history, someone has a past, I can't associate with you. The goal is repentance. The goal is to have forgiveness, have it washed away, it's under the blood, it's gone. And that's all that's, that's desired. That's all that Paul is asking for. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And Paul says, we don't do this to people outside, we only do it to the Christians. And he says, it, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. I hope that you can sort of think about this and maybe look at it in a new light. Maybe not. Maybe you're still angry about it. Um, Paul's words, not mine. So that's cool. Um, I, I hope that maybe you have got, grasped a little bit of what it means um, to live a Christian life. I hope maybe when you read the Old Testament and you see these ancient stories of them sort of saying, um, first off, punishing people in ways that you think are extreme, um, asking people to move out of their city um, when they've inherited it, um, I'm hoping you start seeing not just the actual picture there, but the small picture of us and the church. Everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Everything. Everything. So why don't we take a time of communion right now? This is an incredibly important part of our, um, of our community. It's a time when we take our little candle and we light it and we search the interiors of our lives and we look for destruction. We look for places that need to be thrown out. We look for things that need to change, things that are not in line with the way that we have been told to live. And we deal with them. And we accept the forgiveness of God. If you need to talk to somebody in this room, if you need to um, confess to somebody the things that have been going on in your life um, that you have just chosen not to confront, um, please do that. Um, and if somebody confesses anything to you, you look at them as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and you say, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. You have that ability, you have that right, you have that duty um, to proclaim the forgiveness of God. Um, let's take care of our church. Let's keep our church clean and holy and set apart so that God can use us in his service in the temple. Um, so our communion servers will come on up. Uh, we'll have two up here and two back there. We take a piece of bread, dip it in the glass and eat it. The bread is the body of Christ. The other wine is the blood of Christ. Um, and we take it inside of us and we say, Father, I do this to remember your son, Jesus. Um, let's take some time in prayer and repentance. Father, we love you. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would um, convict us of our sins, teach us to throw out the, uh, the leavened bread that's in our lives. We all have it. It is all there and it is all threatening to spread. Uh, 
to the rest of the lump, and, and, and we don't want that to happen. We want our, our, our flesh to be, um, we, we want our spirit to be preserved and our flesh to be controlled. We love you, Father. Help us to rightly repent now. In your name, amen.